1: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You
2: know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moi Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Mowie Salmon is available ready-to-eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless and you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Milk Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Baker Stacey Mayan Fong created 50 different pie recipes, one for each state. The Nevada pie was a riff on an all-you-can-eat casino buffet.
3: You start with shrimp cocktail, Caesar salad, Alaskan crab legs, then you have prime rib and mashed potatoes on one side, and then ice cream sundae, cheesecake, fruit tart, and chocolate mousse on the sweet side. And
2: Stacy thinks that a Tennessee pie should include biscuits and gravy and also look like Dolly Parton.
3: I knew that I had to make a portrait of her out of pie crust because I knew that in pie crust I could capture the most wonderful volume of her hair because, you know, the higher the hair, the closer to God.
2: Later on the show, Stacy shares more of her state pies. But first, it's my interview with Genevieve Taylor She's a live fire cooking expert and author of the cookbook, Sear. Genevieve, welcome to Milk Street.
4: Hello, it's lovely to be here.
2: Let's get this idea of cooking over gas out of the way quickly. Um, Since most (laughs) people in the U.S. anyway cook on a gas grill, do you find that's okay or are you totally obsessed with wood or charcoal?
4: Well, you know, gas is obviously okay. You can get great results cooking on gas, but I, I am a bit addicted to the fire, so I much prefer charcoal and wood.
2: You know, I, I've, I have a grill that, um, sort of an Argentinian grill that mm. is designed for wood. And I find that wood, as you said, charcoal gets much hotter. Yeah. I find um, cooking over wood would be very difficult. You have to burn it down where you get coals.
4: Yeah, the sure. coals
2: are not as hot.
4: I also have an Argentinian grill, and for me, I find it works best with a combination of wood and charcoal. So the thing about charcoal is it burns two to three times hotter than wood, and it's a very even, consistent burn, whereas wood is very much a living product, and every log is slightly different to the next log, so it's quite variable. So the charcoal kind of helps to even out those inconsistencies.
2: So let's talk about heat level. A friend of mine, Meathead Goldwyn, he has this great rule of thumb. He says the thicker the meat, the lower the cooking temperature, the thinner the meat, the higher the heat. Is that a rule you, you agree with?
4: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I would add to that and say, think about the work that that muscle has done on the animal when it was alive. So the more work the muscle did, so shoulders, um, for example, necks, the longer and slower you need to cook it, the less work it did. So tenderloin muscles along the back, for example, the hotter and faster you can cook it. So it's all about what that muscle did when it was alive, essentially for me.
2: So dry brining, wet brining, uh, you you seem to prefer dry brining or koshering. Yeah. So tell me why it works and, and why one would use just salt versus a brine.
4: Mm, For sure. So I I definitely prefer dry brining. Salt, sodium chloride is a magical little molecule and it very, very quickly, if you sprinkle it over the surface of your meat, it draws out a little bit of liquid from in the meat. So all meat is about 70, 75% water, regardless of what species it comes from. And the... The goal of good meat cookery is to keep that 70-75% of water in the meat and not lose it. So the wonderful thing about dry brining is it breaks the chemical bonds between the individual meat fibres. So when that meat hits your grill... Those protein fibres are physically incapable of contracting up and squeezing out the moisture. They just can't because you've broken the, the chemical bonds. So more of the moisture in the steak stays in the steak. You don't lose it. And that's why dry brining makes it juicier end result.
2: So give me some rules here. So we talked about mm. some of them. But what are the things people get wrong and what are a few simple rules they should take away from this to get it right?
4: Okay, I think my number one thing is to really, really care about the source of the charcoal you use. So good quality charcoal is 95% pure carbon, which is a completely inert element. Uh, Good charcoal should have no smell. No taste, no flavor, make no smoke. Um, And that for me is important. Um, You know, with really good pure charcoal, 95% pure carbon, I can get it lit and be cooking on it in five minutes, which is, I reckon, half half the time you could Hmm. take to light up a gas barbecue. You know, it's really quick. So your fuel really is your number one ingredient. Um, That would be my absolute top tip. Um, Hmm. And then don't use too much fuel just put the charcoal in one area because that's how you create heat zones temperature zones and that's how you the cook have control of the temperature that you're cooking at you know if you put charcoal all over the base of your grill you've just got absolutely hot burning you know and that's when you get that dreaded burnt on the outside and raw in the middle scenario that we're kind of all familiar with
2: so okay here's what everyone does on the weekends they have a chicken right Uh, maybe they spatchcock it, which I think is the best way to grill it. But anyway, or you have chicken parts and everybody messes it up. It's just, you know, it's a train (laughs) wreck. So what's your advice for cooking chicken on the grill?
4: So chicken on the grill, one of my favorite things to cook, But I would never consider cooking any kind of chicken, be it parts or a whole spatchcock one or whatever, over a direct heat. It's way better with chicken to cook it indirectly. That is away from the fire and shut the lid of your barbecue and utilise all those hot air convection currents. Chicken is always better, to my mind, cooked more gently over a lower heat with the lid down.
2: So I loved your recipe for bavette. I think that's French for flank steak. You, you know, filleted, you opened it up, you stuffed it with sausage and Parmesan, I think prosciutto. Yeah. Uh, you know, where'd you get the idea for that? Because it's such a great idea.
4: Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it just struck me that it would be all those lovely Italian flavours just sort of rolled up in one nice big joint that you can then slice and share. So it, the idea for it was was a celebratory thing, you know, like I had some friends around for lunch and I wanted to present something lovely in the middle of the table that we carved at the table and oh it was the middle of summer when I made that recipe first and all the tomatoes were delicious and ripe and it just felt like a really sort of lovely summery celebration dish. So
2: here in the States, of course, uh, on the 4th of July, everyone's grilling hot dogs and hamburgers. Uh-huh. So in England, are there sort of go-to foods uh, you might cook for outdoor parties?
4: Sausages, I'd say. That's pretty yeah. much what everybody does is grab a packet of sausages from the supermarket and burns them.
2: <laughs> what are a couple things um, most people would not think of grilling or barbecuing? that you do?
4: <laughs> I don't know I mean that you know my book Seared is all about meat my new book but um but I cook practically everything so I love showing people when they come to my fire school classes that we make Yorkshire puddings you know um, we make cakes we make chocolate brownies and of course you can make these things in your kitchen And and, and there probably is no real reason for making a brownie on a barbecue if you've got a perfectly good oven in your kitchen. But I guess the point is that you can. And um, and actually, sometimes it's nice to be outside more than it's nice to be inside. So for me, it's just about, yeah, using the heat, making anything.
2: Genevieve, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
4: Oh, it's been really lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Christopher.
2: That was Genevieve Taylor, live fire cooking teacher, also author of the cookbook, Seared, the Ultimate Guide to Barbecuing Meat. Next up, is time to take calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book, Home Cooking 101.
5: Chris, what are your summertime, big family backyard go-to dishes? I hate summer. <laughs> no, you don't. I
2: do. I actually hate summer. Everybody in my family hates summer. What? No, I'm a definitely late fall, leaden skies, cold wind, winter person. A depressed individual. No, no, it's because cooking, that's when you do so much more indoor cooking. You don't, it's, then when, you're not
5: a fan of grilling and. I do
2: grill a lot, actually.
5: Well, was there anything that absolutely makes you so happy to cook on the grill?
2: You know, one of the things I did recently that I really love, I just grilled some shallots, onions, a bunch of peppers, and tomatoes, and they just made a. You know, a dip with some olive oil. That was just really phenomenal. That sounds yummy. A, a, some herbs, fresh yeah. herbs. And that's something, you know, a lot of people say when you're finished grilling the meat, you still have fuel left. Just, you know, put a bunch of vegetables on and cook those too. And then you have that for another meal. Nice idea. Charred eggplant is just a, it's a killer. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I guess that would be my answer charred eggplant. Okay. And a small crowd. There we go. A just, small crowd. Just a few people. Okay. Yeah.
5: And lots of beer.
2: In a cloudy, cold day.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Yes. All righty. Let's take a
5: call. Let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: This is Jane Ruth from Harleysville, Pennsylvania.
5: Hi, Jane. How can we help you?
6: I am catering my daughter's wedding. Ooh,
5: you brave woman! Oh my god! (laughs) Oh my god! I know.
2: Wait, wait. How many people are coming to this wedding?
5: 235. Oh, wow. my goodness. Oh, Chris, we better control ourselves <laughs> I, I th- while we hear the I, I, question.
2: I, th- I think we need to give her some...
5: Intervention? Yeah, yeah. intervention. Anyway, any rate, anyway, t- ask ahead. us your question.
6: Part of the menu that I plan to have, it's going to be outdoors, of course, under a big tent. And one of the items is a corn pie, because that's pretty traditional in our community. But here's my question. I mean, I probably have to make 35 to 40 corn pies
2: corn pie like a hand pie or is it a full pie?
6: A full pie.
2: What's in it besides corn, obviously?
6: When I've made it in the past, I usually just get fresh corn, shuck the corn, put it in a bowl, and then I mix it with some green onions, salt and pepper, dot it with butter, pour a little milk or cream on it, and just make that sort of whole gamish and then put it into the pie crusts and bake it. I was wondering about a little bit of cream cheese to bind the pie, or will the shucked corn give enough thickener to it that I don't have to use that, maybe?
5: I think the idea of the cream cheese is splendid. But if you want the corn to be the thickener, I would advise you to puree some of it and throw it in the food processor to release more of the starch.
6: My other question is baking them. I already went and made all of the crusts. So I have like sixty some crusts in my freezer, and then we've rented a large cooler with racks. I thought I could cool them, put them in there, and then the next morning bring them out, heat them up before the wedding.
5: I would do a test run, you know. So I would do a smaller batch of filling just to get sort of the proportions to see if all of this works. So make a batch for, like, I don't know, four pies, and then figure out how much Mm -hmm. filling. Measure it by cupage you're going to put in each pie. Maybe eat one right away, put some in the fridge, you know, reheat the next day the way you thought, or even just do two pies. that's
2: a good idea. Can I ask a question? Is this pie usually served warm, or is it served at room temperature like an apple pie? It's
6: usually served warm. And actually, we also rented a warmer oven with racks. So once they're hot, like we can bake them and put them in there to hold them. But, you know, I don't want to do that too far in advance, too, because I don't want them to dry out either.
2: I don't like warmed up pies. Mm -hmm. I think the crust gets greasy and Mm -hmm. it's not my favorite thing in the world. So I wonder if this warmer or hot box or whatever it is, you can just put the pies in there. Forget the oven. And forget the oven and then just warm them up very gently and hold them. I wouldn't leave them in the warmers for hours, but I would warm it up ahead of time. I would definitely
5: test it out, though. Test it both for the mixture of the filling and also for how it does. You
2: might want to test it like an hour at warm or half an hour or two hours and see what happens over time if it dries out. Yeah. Just think of all those years you can say to your daughter. Remember, I made you 60 pies for your wedding. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's going to be worth a lot.
5: Yeah. You're going to get that some money in the bank. That yes. is
2: money in the bank. You can hold that over her for years and years and years.
6: I really appreciate your suggestions. Sure. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye now. Bye.
2: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
0: Hi. This is Vlad Pick calling.
2: How can we help you?
6: Well,
0: I wanted to get your perspective on a couple of things. Every time I walk down the jam jar aisle at the grocery store, I wonder to myself, "Hey, what's the difference between all these products? What makes a jam, what makes a preserve, what makes a compote, and how are they different from one another?" And then I also want to know which one of these might be best to make at home.
2: Okay, well, jelly is fruit juice, right? That sets up. Jam has some fruit in it that's chopped up usually. Preserves have bigger pieces of fruit in it. This is just all, you know, how much fruit's in with the mixture. Marmalade is usually citrus, and it's got the rinds of orange or grapefruit or lemon or whatever in it. That's really the difference. I would say a jam is probably the best. I've made a lot of it over the years, and uh, a couple tips, and I'll let Sarah talk. You should make small batches. I find when you double or triple batches, it's very hard to get a good accurate temperature reading because you have to get the temperature just to the right point. So usually four cups at a time or something small at least to get started. And secondly, years ago, I bought a full copper pot and it's used on top of the stove for making jams. And I know it sounds stupid, but it really made a big difference because it conducts heat so well. It's all about getting everything in that pot at the right temperature at the right time. That's the difference and I would give jam a shot, but do small batches to start. One last thing. Most old-fashioned recipes have too much sugar in them. I cut the sugar sometimes in half, and then I can them, and then I put them in the fridge, and they last quite a long time. So I'd also think about sugar content. Even though it is a preservative, some of them are so sweet, you know, you just can't taste the fruit.
0: What's your take on using a, an artificial setting engine, like a gelatin or a pectin or something like that?
2: Yeah, usually you use a pectin, and there are two kinds. Uh, there's one that's a low-sugar pectin, It comes in a like pink box, I think. And if you're going to do lower sugar jams or jellies or whatever, you need that one.
5: Vlad, I had a question for you, though, when you said which one would be a good one to make at home. It's this because you want to make jams or jellies and preserve them to give to friends or, you know, be able to put in the cupboard or whatever.
0: We have a big mulberry tree in our yard and it gives off an impressive amount of fruit every late summer. And We've made jam a couple times with it, but it never seems to last too long on the shelf. And then I wonder, you know, could I be doing something else with those mulberries? Is there maybe a different preparation that I should think about?
5: Oh, well, that's a whole different question. I mean, I'm sure they're beautifully frozen. Yeah, just freeze them. You could also puree them with some sugar and some acid and, you know, freeze it like a sauce, a mulberry sauce that you could put on ice cream. Mm. I only say freeze again. You could, you know, process it. Or probably if you put in enough sugar and acid, it would keep in the fridge pretty indefinitely.
2: Or put it in a large glass jar with lots of alcohol. Oh, yeah. And now sugar. you're talking. Now yeah. you're talking.
5: Yeah. Um, I think really freezing it would be fine.
2: It's like blueberries freeze really Yeah. Long.
5: And then they yeah. say when you use them, uh, we'll see if Chris agrees with this, you just use them from the frozen state. You know, you don't defrost them because they become a wet mess. They hold their shape better if you use them, you know, in a muffin or you know, one of those quick breads. So those are some other ideas.
0: So think about canning them, but really think about freezing them. Yeah, do that. Yeah,
5: yeah, freeze them and double bag them.
0: That's the easiest. Well, I appreciate the encouragement. Yep. Okay. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you both.
2: This is Milk Street Radio. If you need a hand in the kitchen, give us a call anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Yes. Hi.
7: My name is Ari. How are you?
5: Good. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, very close. How can we help you today?
7: Well, I often make chocolate truffles. Chocolate truffles, bonbons, people have different names, but, you know, chocolate with the ganache. In the ganache section. inside. Yeah. I'm rather famous for them among my friend circles. But I was wondering, whenever I make the ganache, I like to use different flavorings sometimes, often alcohols like cognac or bourbon maybe even like lemon zest or something. And I noticed that when I make it, often the next day it tastes different than the day I've made it. And I was wondering, is that like a stew that it ages? But why would it taste different the next day than the day I've made it? And how can I predict what it's going to taste like so that when I make it, I kind of have an idea of what flavor you end up with?
5: Well, there's probably a couple of things here. When you make it and you taste it, I assume you make the ganache and you add the flavorings and then you roll it, correct, into balls? Okay. And you taste it at that point, right? So at that point, it's at room temperature.
7: Yes. But even when I chill it, if I wait a couple days, it still changes the flavor.
5: Of course. Well, that is the point. The temperature is different.
2: But, But do you bring it back to room temperature before you eat it the second or third day?
7: I've experimented with the temperature and that changes it too, but just the aging it a few days, no matter the temperature it seems to change
5: it. So you're saying you take it out of the refrigerator, let them come back to room temperature, taste them again and they taste different?
7: Yes.
6: Exactly.
5: Okay. Well I would also say two other things. I hope they're well covered in the fridge so they didn't pick up any other flavors, because that's really, really important. Yeah. And then the other thing would be I tend to agree with you, especially if you have something like zest with oil in there, it's gonna permeate even more. I could see it becoming stronger in flavor.
7: So is there anything predict what flavors are going to become more prominent?
5: I think just make them frequently <laughs> and take <laughs> notes.
2: No, but it's a good, it's, it's a, it's a good scientific question. I think you're absolutely right. Even if you eat them at the same temperature as they sit, like you're right, like a stew changes in temperature. It gets much more right. complex. So can I ask a question? So after two or three days, are certain flavors more prominent? Is it a duller flavor overall where things are a little bit moderated, or is there in, no consistency in what you find later on?
7: Well, I think some flavors are more complex. For instance, the times when I've added cognac, right, much better a couple days later.
2: Are there any, any things that are sharper, like the lemon zest, that come out?
7: It's hard to pinpoint different flavors sometimes. It feels like acidity does come out a little bit more, I'd say, maybe.
2: Yeah, I don't know. The only thing I can think of is that the alcohol, some of it dissipates over time. You have a more subtle flavor. But that's a good question. Actually, I don't really know the answer. I think I have to call my science guy.
5: Good question, though. It's an excellent question. Very, very good yeah. question. It's a good one. Thank you.
7: All right. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for calling. All right. Have a
2: good
5: one. You too. Bye-bye.
2: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, a pie road trip across America. That's right up after the break.
8: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you.
5: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
2: This is Mill State Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my conversation with Stacey Mayan-Fong. She's the creator of the 50 Pies, 50 States project. While applying for her green card, Stacy dedicated herself to baking a pie inspired by each and every state in America. Stacy, welcome to Milk Street.
3: Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. I'm really, really excited.
2: Your project is 50 Pies, 50 States, which incredibly involves a different recipe for every state. Uh, but the thing that was so interesting is each of these pies was brought to someone in their state, right?
3: It was dedicated to someone that I knew from that state or someone that like spent a lot of time in that state because this project was really about like a love letter to America and also giving back to my friends because they've given so much to me over the years that I've lived here. And yeah, it was my love letter to this country and a love letter to them through food, one slice at a time. I showed them how much I love them.
2: But you spent a lot of time. This is not like you know a three-week project. You spent weeks on sometimes on on an individual pie. So I I just have to ask the question: Would this this came to you in a dream? <laughs> this what I mean? I, you you really have to be motivated <laughs> to do this thing, right?
3: <laughs> I really love a challenge for myself. I really like to push the boundaries. And like before I moved to the states, pie for me was always a savory thing. The only sweet pie I'd really eaten before I moved here was an apple pie. And then when I moved here, I was like, oh my gosh, there's like icebox pies and strawberry rhubarb pie. Oh my God. The first time I had a strawberry rhubarb pie, I thought my head was going to fall off. I thought it was so delicious. So I was like, okay, I am going to make America my home. The best way for me to learn about America would be through food. And there is no food I think that is more American than pie. And I was like, you know what? It'd be fun to bake different pies that are like very specific to each state. And when I set off to make each state's pie, I wanted to do the state with as much justice as I could. I'm not saying that this is like the be-all end-all state pie. I'm saying like this is my interpretation of my experiences in that state or with the person in that state in pie form. So yeah, it's like my pie road trip through the states.
2: So let's say you pick a state like Kansas. Okay. Mm -hmm. You just go to Kansas and drive around. You have friends in every state you start with. I mean, how would you pick a state, research it and, and figure out a pie?
3: So I would talk to a person that I knew from that state and I would kind of like ask them like, what is something food wise that really stuck out to them? And then I would just like deep dive into the internet. So like, It takes me about like two weeks to decide what I'm going to do because, you know, at the end of the day, the pie is kind of a blank canvas and pie is the limit. So like I can go whichever way I choose. I feel like one that I knew right off the bat was West Virginia because one of my best friends from college, Jeffrey, he's from West Virginia. And one of my earliest memories of our friendship, when I found out he was from West Virginia was him telling me about pepperoni rolls, which are these yeasted rolls with like a log of pepperoni in it. And I grew up eating something similar from Asian bakeries with like a hot dog in it. And so I was like, that's so cool that like, you know, there's a little bit of crossover. So I ended up making like a stuffed crust pie, a la like, you know, a Pizza Hut. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the end, it ended up being a pepperoni roll crust pie with like a hot cheese and marinara sauce center
2: look i get it if you made you know an apple pie with cheese from vermont or something which you did but some of these are i mean the nevada pie you want to just talk about this (laughs) because i mean this shows something about nevada but it says a lot more about you too i mean this was crazy right
3: Yeah, so for Nevada, I was like kind of stumped. And I kind of thought about like any time that I had been to Nevada, I'd mostly been to Las Vegas with my dad because he worked in the hotel industry. And I had never seen an all you can eat buffet anywhere else besides in America. And that's something that's like very like ingrained in Las Vegas's culture. So I looked up every single hotel that's on the Las Vegas Strip. I looked at They're all-you-can-eat buffet menus, and then I made, like, a spreadsheet of the common denominators between each of the menus, and I'll kind of take you on, like, a small pie slice tasting menu through an all-you-can-eat buffet. And so you start with a shrimp cocktail, Caesar salad, Alaskan crab legs, then you have prime rib and mashed potatoes on one side, and then ice cream sundae, cheesecake, fruit tart, and chocolate mousse on the sweet side. And so I have this cast iron skillet that's for making cornbread in like the little triangles. And I was like, Oh my God, this is like the perfect size and not so different from the way those, you know, hot dishes hold all the contents in a buffet. So it was kind of like a nod to all of that too.
2: So someone, I mean, that, that's kind of extreme, but you talked about Vermont, which is obviously my state you said, this is amazing, there's a law on the books from 1999, not 1899, 1999, that requires that proprietors of apple pie make a, quote, good faith effort to serve it with ice cream, cold milk, or a slice of cheddar cheese weighing a minimum of half an ounce. How did you figure out there was a law in the books for that?
3: So what's so funny is a lot of state foods and fruit are like laws that Kids in elementary school learn about how to get a bill into law. And so like, that's how Alabama State Fruit became the Blackberry or how Florida got the Key Lime. Like, it's so interesting. And I I think the thing that I've learned the most through doing this project is how passionate everybody is about the state that they come from. Like, I learned about Vermont and I learned about eating cheese with apple pie from my buddy Pete. He told me that his grandpa always used to say a pie without the cheese is like a kiss without the squeeze. And I love that so much. So when I got to Vermont, it was kind of like an ode to my buddy Pete's grandpa. A kiss? Oh, okay. I, I,
2: that's a new one on me, but I, <laughs> no, I, I'm know i going to use that. Yeah, use yeah, it, it. Use it. Um, Minnesota. So you managed to turn corn dogs into a pie, I guess?
3: Yeah. So my old design director, Rebecca, she is from Minnesota, and every year she goes to the state fair. And I wanted to take all of Rebecca's most favorite things about the Minnesota State Fair and make it into one pie. So it ended up being a corndog casserole pie or hot dish with savory funnel cakes on the top because those are two of the stars of any state fair, not just Minnesota. And also, I've never met a corndog I didn't like.
2: (laughs) And there's a T-shirt for you. (laughs) Um, So in New York... You made, I have to get my head around this whole thing, 150 mini apple pies with coffee cake crumble. You write, I had to go big or go home. Why did you feel you had to go big in this case and, and make 150 pies?
3: So New York is my home. This It's where I live right now. Um, I've actually been here now for 12 years, which is kind of crazy to me. In 2020, I celebrated my 10th year in New York, so a full decade. And when I got to the New York pie, I knew I couldn't just make one pie. I really wanted to like celebrate my life here and celebrate all the friendships that I have in the city and all the relationships I've made, whether it's like at my yoga studio or at the tattoo shop I go to, or my favorite provision store, R&D Foods. Like I wanted to like give back to the city that's given so much to me. And when I thought about New York, you know, it's the big apple. It had to be an apple pie, but I was like... Something that I really remember when coming here was like eating an Entenmann's coffee cake for the first time. And I wanted to mimic that like thick crumble on top of the apple pie. And I think the best part about the New York pie is I threw a really big party at a beer hall for all of my friends and like seeing them all in one space, all eating pie together and pie that I made was one of the most special times in, in my life in America so far.
2: Behind all of this or underneath all of this, you refer to this as a love letter to America. You were born in Singapore, grew up in Indonesia, and Hong Kong. Uh, Is there something, obviously, something about America that's reflected in this project that expresses why you love America so much? I mean, you seem thrilled. (laughs) What is it that's thrilling to you about this experience but also about America?
3: It's honestly, it's my friends. Like, I love my friends so much. And I feel like in Chinese culture, you don't really tell anybody that, like, you love them. The way people show affection is through food and giving food. And when I wanted to tell my friends that I love them. I would make them food, whether it was pie or something else or dinner. I've also probably watched too many Nancy Meyer and Nora Ephron movies. So I feel like a romantic grand gesture is just the best thing ever. Hmm. But I love America so much because of the relationships and the friendships that I've made here. And this country tests my love for this country a lot. (laughs) Um, But like at the end of the day, for all of its shortcomings, A lot of the people here and the passion they have to fight for a better future in America um, keeps me wanting to stay here. So you also
2: love some iconic people from America, uh, Bruce Springsteen, but you also have a crush on Dolly Parton, I guess.
3: Oh my gosh. I love Dolly Parton would be honestly the understatement of the century. She's someone that's been like, a guiding light in my life ever since I was little. And so for Tennessee, I had to make the pie biscuits and gravy because I know that that's her favorite breakfast. And I knew that I had to make a portrait of her out of pie crust. So I did (laughs) because I knew that in pie crust, I could capture the most wonderful volume of her hair because you know, the higher the hair, the closer to God. (laughs) And like, if you're ever sad or don't feel like getting out of bed, if you just listen to light of a clear blue morning by Dolly Parton, you're going to get right up and Uh, you're going to like pour yourself a cup of ambition. You're going to drink it really fast and you're going to get your day started. And like, everything will be okay.
2: I I met her once briefly. She is in fact, exactly. Yeah. I'm just (laughs) dropping names right and left here. (laughs) Uh, She is exactly what you think. And um, I think she does represent what, you know, a lot of people love about America, right?
3: 100%. I never thought that I would ever get the chance to see her live. And when she went on tour again, I paid an exorbitant amount of money for tickets, but that's fine. And me and my friends, Chuck and Kelsey, went and saw her at Forest Hills Stadium in Queens. And... I cried most of the time, let's be honest, because I was like so overwhelmed with joy. But another thing that was so beautiful about the Dolly Parton concert was all the different people that come together that love Dolly Parton. She's just incredible and she's amazing. And she does represent everything that people love about America. She is like the personification of that. And so, yeah, I feel like my love of this country and what I feel like this country could be is buried deep inside the heart of Dolly Parton.
2: Maybe you need to change that saying, the higher the pie, the closer to God. You know?
3: <laughs> I know. I got to pile those meringues. Yeah, you got to
2: really uh, amp it up there. Stacy. it's been, uh, it's really been fun. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute pleasure.
2: That was Stacey Mayon-Fong. Her book is 50 Pies, 50 States, an immigrant's love letter to the United States through Pie." Boy, gonna be all right. it's
6: gonna be okay.
2: This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman and I argue about condiments. That's coming up in just a moment.
6: and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
1: Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig.
2: This is Most Street Radio. Right now it's time to chat with Sam Four about this week's recipe, charred pineapple with spiced honey and coconut ice cream. Sam, how are you? You know, it's a beautiful day, Chris. I have no complaints. Well, I have a complaint. You know, a good friend of mine is a big griller, and he, he keeps trying to get me to grill fruit. You haven't been grilling fruit? I've tried it. I sort of think life's too short to grill fruit. <laughs> I get too many of the things on my to-do list. But I have to say, the once or twice I did it, it was actually pretty good. So you've been playing around with pineapple, either broiled or grilled, and you think you found a way to do this in a simple recipe?
1: You know, high heat and pineapple make for a beautiful thing, and it's this sort of charred caramelized crust that you get on the fruit but you still have that super tender, juicy bite to it. It doesn't get dried out. And so introducing high heat, whether it be a grill or through an oven, can be a really good way to bring out the sweetness and the intensity of your fruit.
2: Well, the other thing is it doesn't lose its texture, right? Some fruits just sort of collapse.
1: See, generally I don't love cooked fruit because it just loses all of the things that make it
2: fruit. (laughs) <laughs> identity crisis. Yeah. I,
1: yeah, it has it has a fruit identity crisis. But pineapple might not be able to do any wrong with me at this point.
2: So either under the broiler or on the grill, what's the deal? What's the recipe?
1: I like to broil mine because usually I've been cooking all day and I just forgot to make dessert. This one comes together so quickly. I just throw my pineapple in the broiler for about 10 minutes and I rotate them maybe halfway through. And it gets a lovely brown sort of crust around the edges of it. And I've even used the pre-cored store-bought pineapple for this, and it's come out really, really well.
2: So this just gets like a topping or something, or what?
1: I put ice cream on top, but I have been making this lovely, lovely, kind of spicy, kind of sweet syrup Hmm. topping. Um, I've been whisking up honey and a little bit of red chili flake, some nutmeg, and then freshly grated ginger, which is like fresh and punchy and spicy and bright. And so I like to use that as a topping on my pineapple creations.
2: So you got a little heat and a little bite from the ginger. Okay.
1: And it doesn't become overwhelmingly spicy. It's just a really nice bright zip. And after you get all of the flavors together with the pineapple and the melty ice cream, you could use coconut ice cream here, or you could use vanilla. It really makes a beautiful sort of collected taste if you will
2: so to answer my question about whether grilling or broiling fruit is worth it your answer is charred pineapple with spiced honey and vanilla or coconut ice cream 15 minutes sounds like a great last minute dessert thank you sam
1: thank you for having me you can get the recipe for charred pineapple with spiced honey and coconut ice cream at milkstreetradio.com
2: I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah and I will answer a few more of your cooking questions.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: This is Adrian calling from Tampa,
5: Florida. Hi, Adrian. How can we help you today?
6: Well, I make my own stuffed grape leaves, and when I bought them or I have them in restaurants, the rice always kind of stays firm in the stuffed grape leaves, and mine the rice seems to just fall out when you eat it. What kind of rice
5: are you using, and are you cooking it ahead of time, partially? What are you
6: doing? I'm partially cooking it, and I've used long grain rice. I've used sushi rice, and nothing seems to work.
5: Have you tried
6: Arboreo?
2: Yeah, I think Sarah's onto to it. A medium grain rice is probably better than a long grain.
6: The recipes that I use always call for after you stuff the grape leaves, To put them in a broth. And I'm wondering if that is just way too much. I've tried undercooking the rice and doing this, but it hasn't really
7: worked.
2: If you're going to steam it or cook it in liquid like a broth, I wonder if you could just not cook the rice at all. Yeah. And then it doesn't take that long to cook rice. How long are you cooking it in the liquid?
6: The directions say like for 45 minutes. Yeah. Why don't you start
5: with raw rice? Just use raw rice.
6: The thing is, if I start with raw rice and then I, overstuff any of the grape leaves, they'd
5: pop. Don't overstuff them then. I would say err on adding less rice.
2: I would use medium grain, and I would try not cooking the rice ahead of time. When you stuff the grape leaves, is the rice dry and separate grains, or is it sticky? It's on the
6: sticky side.
2: So, okay, so you stuff the grape leaves with sticky rice, you cook them forever in this broth, And they come out dry, and the rice just falls out of the grape leaves as you eat them?
6: The rice isn't dry, but it just, you know, when you take a bite, the rice just kind of falls out.
2: The other possibilities, you add a binder, right, to the rice?
5: That's what I was wondering. I wouldn't do that. Recipes that I've seen start with uncooked rice, and they do cook for 45 minutes. And you just have to not overstuff, you know, the leaves. Well,
2: try with raw rice. Try medium grain rice. If none of those work, just try some kind of a binder. You could whisk up a couple eggs, and just that egg is a binder. That would definitely do
5: it. Okay. You know what, Adrian? I would really love to know how this all turns out. So, can you get back to us when you figure something out? You bet. Okay. Take care. Nice Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
2: This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call anytime. 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at com. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling?
5: This is Kate from Muncie, Indiana.
2: How can we help you?
5: I have a small business here where I make soup and bread. Every week I have different flavor pairings. And I had enough interest that I decided to start making a vegetarian version every time I make it. But I'm really struggling to figure out when to use plant-based meat and when to make a different type of substitution.
7: For example, I found that a plant-based sausage in a lasagna soup is really good, but a plant-based bacon
5: or ham is really hard to find that works well in a soup without getting broken down. I just wondered if there was any kind of rule to follow as far as figuring out
0: substitutions like that.
2: Well, replacing meat with something that has the texture of meat is a relatively fruitless proposition. So I would just avoid a one-for-one replacement of a plant-based meat for meat. That being said, however, there are lots of ways to get meaty flavor in a soup or a stew, right? I mean, tomato paste you brown in a skillet is great. Miso works great. Mushrooms, et cetera. koji. do you know what that is? No. It's a liquid. It's umami in a bottle. It's absolutely amazing. I would try to get enhanced flavor. You know, charring, browning, deeply roasting, all those things get you flavor. Uh, It's hard to get the texture of meat, right, Sarah? I agree. Let me put it another way. Most of the people in the world eat a mostly vegetarian diet, right, because meat's expensive. So they Mm -hmm. have come up with fabulous ways to cook vegetables without trying to substitute for meat. And that's what I would look to.
5: I mean what I would do is just have different soups and then label the ones that have no meat in them as, you know, whatever vegan or vegetarian cuz believe me if you're a vegetarian you're probably not going to miss the meat. But I did have a couple of other thoughts besides that. I mean in the mushroom department which Chris already mentioned, in particular portobellos and shiitakes. If you're trying to get smoke in there, just use smoked mm-hmm. paprika. You know, uh-huh. the stuff you get from bacon or ham, you can get from sm- – it's not the same, but it's still pretty good. And a couple of other thoughts is tofu – When you take tofu and you freeze it and then you take it out of the freezer and you press it between paper towels, you remove a lot of the liquid so that then when you go and saute Uh it, and you can saute it in something flavorful or with some umami ingredients. marinated in soy sauce. Right, or miso. Then you could add that at the end. Don't cook it in the soup so it gets soggy all over again. Add it as sort of the afterthought. And then I was also thinking about halloumi cheese, which is this Greek cheese that they bake— and it's so yummy, yet it holds its shape.
2: One thing we did in the office last week, we were playing around with some appliances. Like it was an indoor smoker. We smoked portobello's and made a smoked portobello burger. That's a great idea. Oh, uh-huh. A little coleslaw on uh-huh. and... it.
5: Stovetop smoker. You just get the little wood chips. I have one. I forgot about it.
2: We started this call saying, never try to substitute. Now we're going into <laughs> smoked portobello's and tofu. <laughs> well,
5: and... no, but we're not saying meat that isn't meat.
2: Katie, I hope that was. Helpful and not confusing. Right.
5: Thank you. It was, I think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
2: Thanks for calling.
0: I appreciate it. Bye.
2: Next up, a few words of wisdom from Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? Hey, Chris. I'm good. Happy July 4th. Thank you. Uh, It's one of those holidays I don't really look forward to, but I actually love it when it shows up. Okay. Well,
9: fortunately, it's named after the date that it is, so it can never surprise you. (laughs) And it's time for summer barbecues and cookouts, and that means it's time to pick your condiment. There's a condimental divide in this country, Chris. Oh, no. You must take a stand,
2: ketchup or mustard. You're the only person I know who takes something that everybody loves, <laughs> like July 4th, and turn it into a war. <laughs> well, I mean,
9: that some people might argue that's fitting. But anyway,
2: <laughs> ketchup versus mustard. Come on, Chris. Well, hot dogs is mustard and burgers is ketchup. Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm bifurcated okay. on
9: that issue. Actually, Chris, it turns out it was a trick question. <laughs> I would argue that the best answer is both. Both oh. on both. Both on both. I'm here. Oh, I'm here to argue. You're in deep water. In favor of mixing ketchup and mustard. You don't have to decide. Okay, I'm gonna listen. Why is that? Well, mustard is bitter. Ketchup is sweet. Together, they're greater than the sum of their parts, and you get all the flavors. Really, like a, a lot of the classic burger condiments are, you know, ketchup, mustard, mayo mixed together. At Shake Shack, they supposedly puree pickles into their Shack sauce, which I think works extremely well. You know, you want a little bit of everything in in whatever you're putting on your hot dog or burger. And ketchup and mustard is the quickest, easiest, without pulling out a blender, to get a lot of different flavors together on your plate.
2: Well, first of all, on a burger, anything goes. So I, I often do put everything on a burger. And that's fine with me because I think ground beef... You know, it's a neutral meat, you know, that it goes with anything. That being said, sir, when you get to the hot dog, I think mustard and juicy pork really do go together particularly well. I don't want sugar on my hot dog, but on, on a burger, it's fine. That's fair. I mean, look, the way that I like to do it is I don't squirt either of them
9: on directly onto anything. Because you put ketchup and mustard on top of a burger, the bun's going to turn soggy. If they're a little bit cold, they're going to chill the burger and congeal the cheese. What I like to do is you squirt the ketchup and the mustard onto your plate. And for me, I like Coleman's mustard. I'm on a big Coleman's English mustard kick. It's, It's very spicy. It's got a sort of horseradish type of a spice. It's got a little sweetness. And it also has just a little bit of like grainy texture. So I like 60% ketchup, 40% Coleman's mustard, mix them together on the plate, and then you dip your hot dog or your burger on a per-bite basis into that side condiment. What? Yes, that is the way it's done. What do you do? You're dipping it? Yes. Oh, come on. That's far superior. That eliminates soggy bread. It allows you to regulate your condiment usage on a per-bite basis. If you want to bite without
2: condiment or more condiment, you have that freedom. It gives you control as an eater. So here you are. Yeah. You're standing outside in someone's backyard, mm-hmm. maybe yours. You have a double paper plate, right? Yep, yep. You've got a burger in one hand, and you're constantly dipping it into a pile of mixed condiments on the plate. Yes, <laughs> that is exa- that's exactly <laughs> right. An image that will never leave me. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a video on Instagram that just went
9: viral recently of a guy at Yankee Stadium dipping his hot dog into his cup of beer. Now, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That, wow, that wow, is cool. Chris, you must you, you just seem like you're on a mission to lose all credibility
2: today, aren't you? Dipping a hot dog at the stadium in beer is at a different level entirely <laughs> than dipping a hamburger in little tiny dips in your pile of 60 40. So so, so what you're saying is if you're gonna be crazy, go go full crazy. Here's the underlying problem, okay. The whole point of July 4th and eating finger food, hand food, is not delicacy, it is not perfection. I mean, this is about being casual. And somehow you've regimented what should be a simple proposition – into something that has too much science (laughs) and and too much technique in it. Once you get the hang of it, it really isn't that hard.
9: Oftentimes there is a table to sit at, but let's say it's standing. Let's say there's just a big picnic table put out and someone's just putting piles of burgers and hot dogs there, and there's paper plates and there's condiments. There's probably plastic utensils. So you pick up a plate, you squirt your ketchup and your mustard on, you take a fork or a knife, you mix them together, you put your burger and your hot dog on the plate, you can hold the plate in one hand, pick up the food with the other, and dip as you eat. You get full control. You get your condiment ratio in order and correct. Everything is fantastic. Happy July 4th.
2: So, someone comes up to me. We're at the same party, and he says, Hey, do you know who that guy is who's dipping his burger in the condiments? And what do you think I'm going to say? Have no idea. Never (laughs) met him before. Okay. Well, I, I take your point. And for the burger, I think the mix is actually interesting. The hot dog, not so sure. But I I give you credit for thinking this through deeply. That's what I do, Chris, for better or worse. July 4th philosopher Dan Pashman, thank you. Thanks, Chris. Take care. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sportful Food Podcast. That's it for today. You know, in the last few years, we've produced over 200 episodes of Milk Street Radio You can find them all on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, MilkStreetRadio.com, or wherever you find your podcasts. To explore Milk Street and everything we have to offer, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can download our recipes, watch our TV show, learn about our magazine and latest cookbook, The World in a Skillet. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions and thanks as always for listening.
7: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinzebaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis. With production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sidney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Eggloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.